Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Agent Han Show. This is a podcast where we explore the nuances and idiosyncrasies of modern work. Today's episode is inspired by a recent report by Globalization Partners, the pioneer and recognized leader of the global employment industry. Globalization Partners, or GP for short, they help thousands of customers build and manage teams quickly and compliantly in 180 plus countries without navigating legal tax or HR issues. Now, this specific report that I talked about is titled 2023 Global Growth Report, where they surveyed 5,500 employed professionals worldwide, including 500 in Singapore, to uncover their expectations and sentiments in the evolving business landscape. The report also offers strategies and best practices to become a globally-minded, employee-centric leaders. So some of the key findings from the report, and some of it really stood out to me. Firstly, is 9 in 10 Singaporeans aspire to join global companies for better pay, travel, and diversity. More than half of Singaporeans surveyed are eager to secure new jobs in the next six months. And of course, finally, the report ended that companies lacking global presence will lose growth opportunities. So to discuss these findings and more, we have with us Charles Ferguson, the APEC GM for Globalization Partner. He is also a repeat guest who came onto the show two years ago. Welcome back to the show, Charles. Adrian, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the, uh, the invite to come back. You're most welcome. I really enjoyed our last conversation and very certain we will enjoy this one as well. So let's jump straight in. What do you think are the main reasons why Singaporeans aspire to join global companies? Is it truly just about the pay, travel, the diversity, or are there actually other factors involved here? Look, it's a really interesting finding. I'll tell you, the the volume uh, of people who responded in the way that they did also, that would say caught me off guard, but it certainly stood out as you just highlighted. I think if we look at Singapore in its, in its construct in modern day Singapore, almost 60 years of independence. What is the entire sort of model of our economy predicated on, right? It's predicated upon the idea that we are a globally connected hub. And that's, that's a truism and a little bit of a captain obvious statement, but the reality is that from its very inception, right? Through to where we stand today, we have carefully curated our narrative both culturally and economically, to stand out in a very crowded global marketplace as a kind of a quote-unquote global hub. Now, how has that manifested in the way that, in this example, where these folks have raised their hands and so we want to work for a global company? I think that I think that a lot of the drivers for this are Singapore is remarkably exposed to multinational trade, multinational corporations, multinational culture. And I want to start off, and I'll say this again as we go through our conversation, because I think it's a really important point. Multinational corporation, multinational company, MNC, is not a proxy for size, okay? I think a lot of people, when they hear MNC, they immediately, their mind goes to like global brands that are household names and that are really significantly large. The reality is, if you think about our economy in Singapore as an example, I would suggest that the vast majority of small and medium enterprises in Singapore, certainly medium and upper mid-market businesses, are by definition multi-country operations. Like they'll have 
some sort of distribution function in another country nearby, perhaps it's Malaysia with manufacturing across the causeway. Maybe they're doing some offshore support in other parts of the region. And certainly they're, if they're e-commerce related, which a lot of our SMEs are, they're doing distribution in multiple markets as well. Make no mistake, we have a very sophisticated and very um, enviable market in Singapore, but at 5.5, 5.6 million people, it's not a massive market, depending on what kind of business you're in. So a lot of the, I would say, preconceived notions and certainly some of the more valid, congruent and near-term notions around, you know, what did they say? They said, we want to consider looking for opportunities in a global business or a multinational business because of the perception of better paying benefits, because there are options for us to travel or even possibly work abroad. And specifically, the, the, I think the third largest on the statistical back point that was made was that they really wanted the chance to be part of a culturally diverse work environment. These are the sort of the top three most prominent areas. I, I think that's reflective of the type of work culture that we have in Singapore. It's indeed the case that it was much higher in Singapore. I think it was 93 plus percent versus 78% of the other global respondents who wanted to focus on that type of an opportunity. So I, look, Adrian, the first thing you called out was the most prominent piece of feedback that we got, which was pay and benefits. I think it, it's the, I think the focal point on benefits over pay because pay in Singapore comparatively across the rest of the region is actually quite high, but benefits an area where I think there's a lot of nuance that we could start to unpack if we wanted to. And that doesn't necessarily equate to financial benefit. There's also a ton of benefits that particularly younger workers are looking for right now around empowerment through choice and access to information and training. And that cultural diversity piece does play into benefit to a very large extent. People want broader perspectives and different sorts of working styles to be effective. Does that kind of help to frame a little bit of what the respondents were on about? Oh yeah, definitely. And I think being small doesn't mean just pure disadvantages because being small totally also not. means that you can react with nimbleness. And like I said, the, there may be things that are a bit more intangible. You can't really put a monetary value behind it. But if you expect big, gigantic, multi-country company with 100,000 headcount to make a policy change just to accommodate that, it probably have to go through three, three generations or so. So there, there might be merits. And I do understand that you have been an employer and business owner or small business. We'll come to that later on. And perhaps yep. from there, we can discuss what are the key differences that you personally have observed. The other thing that I really want to get your take on is this other finding, which is on the level of eagerness among Singaporeans to secure new jobs in the next six months. Now, firstly, do you think this is a sign of dissatisfaction with their current employers or reflection of the changing market? But before you even answer that, I do want to point out, I always have been hearing this, six out of 10, seven out of 10 Singaporeans want to change new job and all that. But when I look at all my friends, if I take yeah. a random pool of 10 of them, I don't see many of them changing jobs. <laughs> is it just because Singaporeans, just like myself, tend to whine a lot, tend to complain a lot, but when... It, in actual situation, they don't really take action. Look, that's a, an astute observation for the listeners who are familiar with some of our colloquialisms. 
I do think it's a careful mix of a little bit of Kepo and a little bit of Kiasu together. And to define that, what I'm referring to is it's wanting to see what everybody else is up to. That's that Kepo side, what that, that focus, that curiosity on the one end of the spectrum. And on the Kiasu side, it's, I don't want to miss out. It's a fear of missing out the FOMO characteristic, right? To, to, and I don't want to use that as a dismissal or trivialize what you've just called out. I would suggest to you that indeed it is the case that people in Singapore are particularly exposed to a large amount of opportunities. And in those opportunity spaces, there's a lot of acute interest in where the opportunities lie that are, let's say, outside of the local marketplace. And because all of these global opportunities are becoming manifest in our market, look, if you look back, say, five years ago, it was a lot of businesses were very focused on entering into the Asia Pacific market almost in, invariably by either going to Australia, if it was like an American or European company that would land in Australia and use it as a proxy for kind of, a, let's call it like a diet entry point, because there was a lot of analogous comparisons to their own home market, Canada, UK, US, et cetera. Or they would go to, to, to Japan because Japan was perceived to be, it was the second largest economy in the world at the time. So it made a lot of sense. It's a very nuanced, a very dynamic, large market. Um, or folks would center in on the opportunity of China and they would typically land in Hong Kong as the gateway to go in. Okay. Bearing that in mind, Singapore, it had a lot of cachet from an international hub point of view, but by and large, it was not the first port of call for most businesses when they're expanding into APAC. It was a port of call, but not the first. As we go through the arc of time in the pandemic. And I'll never say the pandemic is over because it's certainly not is it has evolved to the point that it's at now, but let's call it the crescendo of fear, uncertainty, and doubt around this thing has plateaued post the pandemic crescendo. And certainly given the extremity of the trade contest between the United States and China, and certainly the zero COVID policies in some of the markets particularly in China, in our region, forced a lot of businesses to start focusing on favorable demographics like Southeast Asia. And as it relates to that, Singapore is seen justifiably as a safe haven, but also as a very favorable location for international expansion. So much so that I think our local population are always, they're loyal and they're focused. And to your point, you've got buddies that are staying in place. They talk a big game. I think that's mm. fair. I think it's rational and reasonable to be looking out, but I don't sense a whole lot of attrition. And I would suggest that that's a healthy scenario. And this might seem controversial, Adrian, and you can please give me your comment. But when my team members in any company, whether it be a GP or any other business have come to me in the past and said, Hey, a headhunter pinged me, or I found this interesting opportunity. I would always encourage them to go have the conversation. That sounds a little bit disingenuous for me to say that perhaps to some of the listeners, but I feel confident that if I'm providing an environment that is a retained sort of environment, that is a nurturing kind of environment, if I have a, a very clear mission and there's clear communication and transparency to take my team on the, the journey, that the folks that are kind of part of that are going to stick around and they see opportunities to learn and grow. If I'm not providing them for that, or if the company's not providing for that, then they should go out and look for other opportunities, right? 
This is not a, a marriage. This is a, an opportunity for their talents and our opportunities to merge together and create a career for the folks that work here. I think it's fair. I think over half is not wildly disparate to the same sorts of comments we got from other markets. It doesn't surprise me, but I agree, I agree with you, Adrian. I don't think that people are falling over themselves. I take a little bit of umbrage with the whole notion of the great resignation cliche. I think that we did go through a period of extremely dramatic calibration, reimagining our relationship with work. And I do think that if there are folks in the ecosystem in Singapore who are voting with their feet, it has more to do with the companies that they've been working with, not evolving with the current landscape and less to do with just wanderlust, wanton desire to find new opportunities from our working population. I completely agree. I think based on my conversation with many friends who are gainfully employed, I do hear them flexing, complaining about certain things. But one year later, sure. when we have the same conversation, where are you right now? Still at the same place? You don't yeah, really see them well, moving? It, totally. And it's particularly important right now where we, again, I'll use Singapore as the point of reference. We have a unique uh, point of view, a, a unique sort of position in the marketplace where we very quickly are... I'll use the word impacted, not as a negative word, but I'm just saying we, we get the, the spider senses, the spidey senses really fast because we're so interconnected with so many different aspects of trade around the world. I think that it's, I think that it's fair that people are looking and hearing and listening and, and speaking about it, but given the amount of economic tumult that we've been experiencing, given the socioeconomic and sociopolitical challenges that we see in the world right now. I think a lot of people are taking a lot of comfort in that safe harbor and being committed to their work. And I think that is a reflection of the workers, but I also think it's a reflection of the businesses who are realizing that it's so much more pragmatic to invest in the talent they already have. And that's why you see this marked increase in businesses when it comes to talent mobility. It's really about internal mobility more so than it used to be about the external mobility story, which I think is a, an indicative aspect of the economy that we're operating in. Well, because I was a former business owner, I also do understand there are certain limitation or restriction that business owners have to be mindful of. You can't just say, oh, okay, reports say global presence, let's expand to three countries tomorrow. <laughs> There will be a certain limitation. Totally. And I think you probably personally experienced it. You were at one point in time a business owner of a jazz lounge in China. And I would imagine it would be okay. a small business. If you can relate your experience, then help audience learn a bit about what that is all about. And also, what are some of the perhaps operating restrictions when it comes to managing headcount? in that setting versus the MNC big company culture that you're part of right now? Yeah, look, there's a great observation. I think certainly when I started that jazz club in Shanghai, I opened it up on the Waitan, on the Bund in Shanghai, just as China was ascending into the World Trade Organization. So it was 2001 that the WTO welcomed China into that, that fellowship. And there were a lot of dramatic changes happening in China at the time. But what was interesting, Adrian, was that they were experimenting with the 
policy changes that were required for full ascendance to WTO in Shanghai as their test market. So what that meant was there were a ton of ministries, both high-level and low-level ministries, that were going through evolution in their policy design. And as you very well know, and I'm sure the listeners will know, China, it's certainly it's the case from all, every part of Asia, but it's acutely the case that in China, relationships are very important. The Chinese phrase for guanxi is incredibly critically important to understand and focus on. And how that kind of became very clear to me was beyond my own sort of network guanxi around how I would find my space and kind of establish relationships with suppliers and all the various kind of exciting and day-to-day sort of operational aspects. The Guanxi story that kind of impacted me really dramatically was the fact that I did not calculate into my planning. When I went through the process of following, at the time, it was a very serial process of going up the food chain to get your licenses, right? So you'd start with let's say, for example, the health bureau to get your health license. And when you, once you got your health license, you could go get your food handling. And once you got your food handling, you get your beverage. And all the way on up the line, you get tax bureau and the smoke and occupational safety hazard. There were, I think, off the top of my head, as I recall, I had 17 licenses that I was supposed to go through. To go through, yeah, 17 in a serial fashion, such that I couldn't go to the end of the game until I'd gone from the beginning of the game, right? And what I found was about probably four steps into the process, the top end of the pyramid in a classic Asian sort of hierarchical construct had started to rapidly evolve their policies to adhere to the new WTO standard. Whereas the bottom of the pyramid were still operating as business as usual. So it became very clear to me that my job was to act as a middle person to connect ministers and officials from the smaller policy areas with these larger bureaucrats and actually would take them to lunch and have them sit down together and get to know each other and tell them, hey, this is what's changing and give them the documents and stuff. It was crazy. You put that as a lens into what I do today, the area of compliance is It doesn't matter how big your business is or how small your business is or what industry you're in, being mindful and cognizant of the criticality of being compliant to local, whether it be business norms or certainly labor laws or business laws and policies is absolutely, it's table stakes for any foundation of success. Used to be back in the day in some countries, and I will throw rocks and make dispersions. But in some places, you could buy your way out of mistakes, right? Mm. These days, extremely standardized that you need to operate very clearly within the bounds of the law. And moreover, it is a significant differentiator for businesses when they can put a clean bill of health and show transparently how they operate in a transparent manner. So That was one area, and I'll quickly relate one more quick cultural story, which I found really interesting, which was when I, you asked about hiring practices, when I hired my first crew, I had a full service restaurant as well as a bar in this facility. It was 
6,000 square feet. It was over 600 square meters of space, several hundred covers, a really long bar that made the long bar look short. Okay. And it, it was a great full service experience with a music program and the whole deal. Within the first week and a half or so, I had a dramatic cultural challenge between my back of house staff. So that's your, your executive chef, your sous chef, your expo, all the folks working the mise en place and all the folks on the line. Vis-a-vis my bar manager, general manager, wait staff in the front of the house. And it was contentious that I had this sort of, I don't know if it was a brainwave or if it was luck or if it was just pure frustration, but I decided the only way to overcome the obstacle was to flip them. So literally for one week, I took the back of the house and put them in the front of the house and the front of the house and the back of the house. It was a pure, unfettered, complete disaster. Okay. The restaurant fell apart. The front of the house was just complete bedlam, total chaos. But as the week went on, I only did it for five days, but as the week went on, probably day three or four, there was the establishment of some kind of rhythm. And by the time I was done, personally, I threw it in the bike. It was the case that when we flipped everybody back, what had become clear was that we had established some form of empathy, right? Mm-hmm. That the folks in the back now understood that the front wasn't just all rainbows and unicorns, right? And certainly the front of the house understood the tremendous amount of pressure that the back of the house goes through on a daily basis. I use that as an example sometimes when I talk to my colleagues or even to customers about it is imperative that you use the word empathy correctly. And the only way to really understand is to, and I know this is a cliche, but I don't care, is to walk in somebody's shoes. Like you need to know exactly what's going on or at least make the attempt to understand exactly what's going on. And what I love about that, again, I, that was not a genius move. That was probably more luck than anything, frustration or anything. But I, what I love about the outcome of that is that what I did was not particularly germane to the Chinese experience. Nor was it germane to the Australian or Canadian or Mongolian or African. That was just a human thing, right? And some things that I think local businesses can learn and global businesses can learn is that it's not always the case that you have to be specific to a particular area or particular culture. Sometimes human nature is what you need to be thinking about and how you connect those dots on a human level. That makes people really feel respected and feel like they're part of something bigger. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think in the best sense of scenario, that is really the most practical reaction you can have. Oh, frustration, although you emphasize that I can truly relate to it. What, one thing I am interested to learn, in your opinion, if a larger company, let's say a jazz lounge chain, if there's such a thing, were to yeah. go through the same experience as you, how different would it be for them to go through the 17 steps process and also in perhaps dealing with those kind of hiring challenges that you just mentioned? Because a bigger company with a bigger war chest, would, would that be significantly different in your opinion? Yeah, I think that it would. And I'll give you my opinion anyway of why that's the case, because I have ex- I've experienced helping global brands expand, okay? Not only through what I do today, but even as a, as a leader in a business that was opening a new market on behalf of a global company. There, there are these sort of knowledge experiences that 
larger companies that have operated previously in another part of the world can bring to the table that I think are typically a little bit more process designed, process oriented, and perhaps therefore a little bit more standardized and make no mistake. It's, you can't operate throughout life, throughout economic expansion in a purely bespoke manner. The Pareto principle almost invariably will apply, right? Where you try to bring about enough scale through 80% standardization, and then you save that 20% on the tail end or even on the front end, depending upon the situation, but to be locally specific, to give you that, that leverage point so you can be impactful at the local level. As it relates to, you made the comparison or sort of the analogy of a, let's say a global chain of F&B, right? A, a jazz chain or whatever it might be. I think that any business that has expanded once, if they're led by any level of intelligent leadership, is going to learn lessons from that first experience. Not to say that you can paint by numbers, not that every country you expand to is exactly the same, because it's certainly not. But some of the overarching experiences that you're exposed to hmm. can teach you lessons that can prepare you for things that heretofore might have hit you broadside that you didn't see coming, right? It at least gives some light into your blind spots. I think that's really important. I think in that regard, it's very healthy and helpful to document these things, to try and put together some cookbooks, some recipe books for how to do certain things, where you've seen gotchas, kind of FAQs, things that keep you attuned. And one thing that I've seen a lot of successful businesses do, some of them MNC, some of them new entrants into new markets, or maybe doing it for the first time. But when you encounter something and it catches you off guard, maybe it's caused you pain, maybe it's wasted resources or time or caused you some sort of discomfort. One of the most critical things you can do beyond what I just stated, which is documenting and making sure that you learn from those experiences is share, find in your community and your network, other businesses that might be in the same genre or part of your extended network, et cetera, and share that experience because paying it forward is not only the right thing to do, but it helps you to think about the experience that you've had and really frame it in a way that can be repeated. The knowledge of the lesson can be repeated. And that has value because at some point you're going to grow and you're going to bring on new people and they're going to be the ones responsible perhaps for that new market or that local knowledge or whatever it might be. And sharing that lesson is so critical because knowledge is only useful when it's shared, right? One person having the experience and just keeping it a secret isn't going to help anybody. I, I think that those businesses do have that hallmark if they're moving into markets more than one time. Additionally, I would suggest that some of those companies also become experts in the blending and integration and leverage of local knowledge. That whole think global, act local cliche, right? I don't think it's a cliche when it's actually done. You know, if you're thinking on a broad spectrum, but you're taking in the insights, the experiences, and the value of those local operators, your local talent, and giving them the respect that they deserve. Because I'm beating this point to death, Adrian, I'll stop after this point, but the experience that someone has in an emerging market can very often 
when you extract some of the cultural nuance, cultural ambiguity of a particular area. But if you just look at emerging markets as an example, as a generic container, the experience of someone, let's say in Brazil, could very well have a massive positive impact on the experience of someone who's expanding into Indonesia, as an example, right? Because you can take emerging market characteristics and apply them. And then you blend in, as I just stated, some of that local knowledge and you become very potent in that local market. But going in blind or going in wholesale saying, oh, I've done this once before. I know exactly how to do it. You're going to fail. Nine times out of 10, you're going to fail or you get lucky. That's the tip. So big companies are not just rich in terms of your bank account. They are also rich in terms of experience and all this combined with actually, well, put them to be quite a model employer. So given so, what can small businesses do to attract and retain talent, especially here in Singapore? Because it is so hard to compete against the bigger giants at the level of better pay, travel, diversity. What else can small businesses offer? I think that small businesses actually have, and you mentioned it, I believe, in the beginning, in the preamble of what we were talking about earlier. They have this unique characteristic because of their size of an ability to navigate around obstacles really quickly. And theoretically, again, they are able to, with that agility, they're also able to pivot. So you think about when a business, you mentioned um, a great characteristic of 100,000 employees, right? Like these massive juggernaut companies, they cannot turn on a dime. And additionally, you also made another comment, which I wanted to unpack a little, which is, when there are changes in a cultural environment, and let me put that into a little bit sharper focus for some more context, Singapore, as an example, became the next victim in the line of exposure to the COVID epidemic, pandemic. And we had to do, as you'll vividly recall, the circuit breaker, right? For the listeners who are listening to this who might not be familiar with the term, that was the full, unadulterated, straight up and down lockdown of the entire country. And companies, particularly small businesses, were able to very quickly become thoroughly remote. Larger companies, because of a whole litany of different characteristics that make it challenging when you're big, right, really had to struggle and go through quite a degree of pain to get their security and their processes and their the issuance of technology and all these other areas out there and aligned. Again, kind of a red thread that connects that comment is when you think about the adoption of technology. So a large corporation might not be able to pivot as quickly to a tool that is very obviously going to help them to overcome an obstacle, right? Because of the whole host of different internal challenges, machinations. If it's a public listed company, there could be, there's a whole host of things I've got to go through. Yeah, we're reading about how bigger companies right now are so resistant to chat GPT that they don't even allow their employees to use them. It's incredible. Look, I understand the trepidation, okay? But we need to be cautious. We being the royal we, the all of us, okay? Need to be cautious of the majority of the concepts that the Luddites followed, right? During the industrial revolution were not founded in any form of logic and weren't certainly getting them forward in their agenda. There were some ideas they had that were germane, fair, 
just as some of these corporations are, are doing the same thing, but you, you must have a culture of curiosity and experimentation. So it's not about ignoring or damning something like a chat GPT or an innovation like that. It's about how do we take this innovative idea or this concept and apply it to our business in a way that can give us scale more quickly because the whole world, as we all know, is changing so rapidly. So my point being, smaller businesses have that agility, have that characteristic. Additionally, it has a lot to do, Adrian, in my mind, with the type of environment or cultural affinity that a talent has with a particular opportunity. And to add clarity to that, what I'm trying to say is, if I am interested in a, um, a multinational environment, that's more of a, and I, I want to qualify before I make this comment, I'm not going to suggest when I make this next comment that it's cushy or easy to work for an MNC because I've worked for Microsoft, Salesforce, SAP, ADP, I've worked for some big companies and that was hard work, great people, great cultures, but very challenging work. It's challenging in a different way. Okay. So it depends upon what is your motivation? What is the factor? that is getting you into your career, getting you on that treadmill every morning to go out and explore your work. If you're interested in rapid innovations and taking a business from one point to the next more quickly and having a seat at that table early in your career, it's a huge opportunity to work for a smaller business. And small companies need to learn how to tell that story. When it comes to talent, um, a lot of larger corporations will struggle when they come into a new market because that market is saturated, right? That the area that they're entering into, the skills gaps are significant. They are hamstrung by only looking off that single peer. Smaller businesses, in my experience, most businesses these days, frankly, in my experience, are starting to realize that the global talent pool is their talent pool. They're no longer constrained to their backyard to Anmokyo or Bar, right? They can go anywhere in the world to find that talent. They have to put a clever design and map into the way they do their work, the way that jobs get done. But that makes a small company just as competitive. Small uh, software development house can be just as competitive when they're going out looking for uh, talent globally as a large global national, depending upon how they sculpt their benefits and how they tell their story. I think it's exciting. So one last bit from the report, which I found really interesting is companies lacking global presence will lose growth opportunities, which is logical. On that yeah. note though, would that mean small businesses in Singapore must be global from day one? Isn't that too much pressure? I'm saying too much pressure from the point because Singapore is ultimately a high cost country. It's unlike you yeah. starting from say India, and then you expand to Australia, but all your cost base are in rupees. It makes sense. Yeah, From Singapore, I, I expand to Malaysia. Well, I do spend less money, but I also make less money. <laughs> so what could small businesses look at in, in the reality of things where, of course, I do have to expand beyond just Singapore. The market is just so small. But where are pockets of opportunities for them, especially coming from a country with a high cost base? This is a really important point, Adrian, that you raise. I think it's critical that businesses, regardless of whether they're in a high cost marketplace, like a Singapore, as an example, or a more cost effective place, like let's say, for example, Indonesia or India, you mentioned India as an example, the Philippines, et cetera. There are 
a litany of different ways that these businesses can be quote unquote global without following that traditional path of global expansion. So what do I mean by that? I'll use talent, but I'll expand a little bit away from that in addition, because it's too easy for me to talk about like talent when that's what I do for a living, right? So let me give a couple of other areas of point of reference. I think there are areas of expertise, let's use Singapore in this example, that our particular market has that many markets around the world do not have. So whilst we cannot punch hard on our domestic market per se, because of simply the fact that it's 5 million plus people. And you look at a market like Indonesia with 268 million people. So there you go, right? Or hmm. 5 million people in Singapore, 5.6 is less than the population of Melbourne here in Australia. So you've got some challenges there, but necessity is the mother of invention. So how do you think globally when it comes to, let's look at some analogous markets, right? Let's look at some markets that have characteristics that would be hallmarks of similarity of potential for our market in Singapore vis-a-vis somewhere else abroad. Markets like what? Markets like Finland. Finland is a market of approximately the same size, approximately similar sorts of constraints. You know, everyone is centered around Helsinki for all intents and purposes. It's a very innovative marketplace. It's a hugely dynamic talent pool, and it's a gateway to access into the Nordics and to Northern Europe almost instantaneously. There's a ton of connectivity between Finland and Singapore. Now I'm not Finnish. Okay. You can probably tell by my outrageous accent, but I'm simply calling out the fact that if I were a Singaporean company, one of the things I'd be looking for is what are some markets that I can explore? And by that, I'd say hire a contractor, hire a gig worker, find a partner. We can do anything online, right? We can literally do anything. We can even well, form, run, and completely manage an entire global business without having step foot out of the swivel chair that you're sitting in your office in Singapore, right? It's completely possible. We proved it. Every single member of the working population in the information worker side of the economy over three years, right? No one can argue that it can't be done because we've proven it. It's empirically data-driven that we've been able to do this. So there's this popular misconception that the idea of finding a partner or finding an outsourced employee is a race to the bottom called low-cost labor arbitrage because that's predicated upon the idea of this 30, 40-year-old concept of business process outsourcing, right? The BPO industry. Call it call centers, call it whatever you want to call it. That is such a small sliver of the opportunity of what I like to call talent arbitrage. What does that mean? That means, example, you might not be able to find the top shelf data scientists that you want to find for whatever this AI company is that you're trying to launch in Singapore. And it, augmented intelligence, large language modeling, machine learning, robotic process automation, whatever flavor you're trying to build your business on top of, the fact is that there's a very finite number of professionals who can deliver the expertise you might require other than yourself learning it, right? into your business in Singapore, not least of which because, to your point, it's very expensive. Now, if the entire planet is your talent pool and you're willing to put in place some drivers in your company so that you can 
manage cultural nuance, linguistic subtleties, and certainly time zone challenges. You can find exactly what you're looking for in 192 other countries on the planet, right? So why not experiment, find an analogous market where the talent might have some, that Pareto principle where they know some of the key elements of type of challenges you might face, try somebody out, right? You don't have to get on a plane and fly to the country and set up a company and open a bank account and enroll in the payroll and do all that stuff. You can use a partner to help you streamline that and get that done in a couple of hours as opposed to the traditional way, which is very costly. And if it doesn't work out, setting up is one thing, but unwinding a business can be beyond pain, right? It can be the cave of many pains. So I do think it's a great, talent is the great differentiator for any business, period. Best strategy, best product, best intentions, nothing without the best talent. Experiment. You will, you will find there are ways and means to get it done that are dramatically faster than you could imagine. And because of our strong currency, we probably would be able to hire more or even outbid other people who may be fighting for the same talent. I think one of the totally. key things that really stood out to me was experiment. It could just be an experiment. It doesn't have to be a nothing or nothing. It doesn't have to be, oh, I need to open 10 locations at the same time in the same month or nothing at all. It doesn't have to be That's the exactly case. Right. It doesn't even have to be That's a exactly physical right. presence. It could just, okay, maybe I, let me outsource two positions of this department to Philippines, to Poland, to somewhere else. And let's see where we go from there. And I think if, if companies here are just a little bit more open to experimentation, or maybe just set aside, I don't know, 5% of the budget, 10% of your time just to work on all this experiment, who knows, that may be the first step to globalization. You're spot on, Adrian. And I'll tell you, Matt, when I first started working with GP here in the region, the vast majority of our Asia Pacific business was acting as the, the vehicle for European and North American businesses, particularly to expand in Asia. And that was an interesting sort of paradigm. It's pretty classic, right? If we look on, coming up on four years later, the vast majority of the engagements that I have in this region are Asia Pacific businesses who are looking to experiment and expand into Europe and North America. So the pendulum has completely swung to the opposite end of the spectrum. And to me, that's, first of all, I get a tremendous amount of satisfaction and joy from seeing that happen. But moreover, I think it speaks volumes to the pioneering spirit of the companies that are coming up, particularly, I'll use this point again, particularly post the pandemic kind of height. A lot of these businesses, I think it was William Buffett who said, be greedy when others are fearful, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of big businesses will pull back the reins and fair enough because they're dramatically exposed on so many different markets, so many different fronts. But smaller businesses can take this timing and this sort of environment, um, the constraints and become creative. And I think that's really exciting, really interesting. Oxford Economics in 2021, I believe the report came out. It said that for the first time in history, over 50%, at the time it was 52% of the global contribution to the 35 and under college educated workforce was now in emerging markets. So for the first time in history, like two and a half years ago, the momentum in the marketplace of dynamic, young, ambitious, well-educated, eager talent in the world, demographics, 
are in emerging markets. And you know what we really are blessed with, Adrian, in Singapore is being smack in the middle of some of the most dynamic, um, most sort of lucrative emerging markets on the planet, not least of which because of the points that I raised earlier in our conversation around rebalancing of supply chains, right? China, it's not China's dead, long live China, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. It's China plus, right? It's how do we take advantage of all this capacity of talent and new economic opportunity and good educated workforce and across all these markets, even EDBs out there talking about the story, right? It's Singapore plus one, right? It's how do we take advantage of the opportunities in bit 10, that time? How do we leverage our friends and our neighbors and all their strengths in, in, in JB and across the causeway and Iskandar and further afield? How do we take further advantage of the longstanding relationship we have with China around agricultural food safety and security? How do we increase our relationships with our neighbors being that fulcrum of growth because of our stability in the region, because of our fundamentals and our compliant sort of foundation? That's an awesome opportunity. Singapore businesses, particularly small ones, need to wake up to the point, which is you are in an unprecedented, highly enviable position to leverage this point in time to become global businesses. And that, again, I'll say it one last time, that does not mean it's a proxy for size. It means it's an opportunity to go into new markets and grow your business, find more talent. And there are easy ways to do that. GPs are perfect. And I think it's on discussion like this who also makes me realize the benefit of having political stability. Because if you're in a country where every other week you're going to call a referendum on whether you want to leave this or that union, I don't think business owners may have the mindset to really think about expanding their business overseas. They probably want to just pack up and <laughs> leave the country altogether. So I think you're right. right. You're spot on. We are in an enviable situation. It is right now for business owners to step up and take advantage of the situation to the best of their ability. And with that, thank you so much for making time today, Charles. Really lovely speaking with you. For people who are keen to learn more about yourself, GP, as well as the report, where should they go to? Look, I'm always happy to connect with anyone on LinkedIn. Charles Ferguson, Charles H. Ferguson, I think I'm called out on LinkedIn. Find me, connect with me, please. Moreover, with what we do and what our business is capable of, please go to www.g-p.com and check out if you're considering expansion or if you're in the throes of expansion, we can help you. So look us up and we'll be happy to lend you a hand. All this will be added in the show notes. Once again, Charles, thank you for coming on to the show. Adrian, thank you again for having me. Take care.